Hello and welcome to our ESG podcast where today we're going to talk about permission to transition and the interrelationship between climate change and society and how that's required to work seamlessly together in order to enable us to reach net zero. But firstly, I really want uh, to give you the time to introduce yourself for people who don't know you. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you got involved in sustainability and, and, and also kind of bring that to life in terms of how that plays through into your work as well as your personal life. Cheers, Emily, and lovely to see you in person today uh, after two long years of pandemics and, uh, and, and lockdowns. I am a sustainability person through and through. It's, in, it's been in my bloodstream since my university days. Um, I was campaigning for low carbon solutions on halls and in campuses, which uh, I'd like to say uh, so you can go and visit the solar panels on the London School of Economics, uh, new buildings anytime you want, and campaigning for student reuse schemes. So it was always in my passion, but I sort of knew I needed to get a job and pay off some of that student debt, but also try and make a bigger impact. So when I applied for banks and financial sector, unfortunately, as an economist, I was uh, lured by the uh, then dollar signs um, uh, to try and uh, to improve my life. Um, I was uh, applied for the top rated sustainability um, banks. So ABN AMRO, as was back then, back in 2004, uh, was F the FT's top sustainability bank. And I was always looking at this in where I wanted to take my career. Um, and been really lucky to work across a number of products. But in the last 13, 14 years, I've been able to focus almost entirely on climate, whether that's financing 500 megawatts of renewables around the UK, um, whether that's now setting NetWest's ambitious climate strategy, uh, that I'm sure we'll come on to in a minute. Um, but I've really been able to focus my career on that. But I also, I mean, this is the bit, I eat, sleep and breathe this. So outside the bank, um, I'm an elected official. I'm a councillor in Bloomsbury Ward, subject to the will of the people in a few weeks' time, um, hopefully re-elected. Um, but I chair Camden's Pensions Committee, um, where we've won awards for our approach to ESG, where we can really push push uh, the boundaries on what we're doing there. Um, and similarly, uh, serve on the Culture and Environment Scrutiny Committee, where I've been able to campaign for more low-carbon transport, um, uh, as well as uh, our new green municipal investment, um, which is currently open through uh, abundance at the moment. So I really do eat dream and sleep this stuff wow it's an impressive list of things as well and great to to know that i guess like us there are people out there who genuinely think about this all the time and, and think are really concerned about how we move to a to a low carbon society we've also got tom who i know tom all with us i know you know him really really well but i just wanted to allow tom the chance to just introduce himself and and i guess explain how he eats sleeps and breathes sustainability <laughs> I'm Tom Orr. I previously worked very closely with Rishi at NatWest. Uh, I was in the group strategy team, but we worked across all things sustainability. And, you know, Rishi was probably quite a big influence on my desire to go from a kind of generic strategy role into something that is 100% sustainability. Fantastic. Thanks, Tom. So, Rishi, let's just dig into this topic. It's absolutely fascinating. So I had a question for you in terms of what you see every day, which is obviously really wide and varied through your various different roles. What do you see as the main barriers, but also the enablers to the transition to net zero? Sure. So, I mean, I guess we've got to firstly acknowledge where we've got to now. So we are in a totally different space where we were 10 years ago when my then mentor was telling me, oh, keep away from this climate change stuff. It might be a bit niche. And now <laughs> I look at it and, and we, we think, uh, I won't name, uh, name her, but it was a, an interesting conversation. You've seen that move up in public consciousness. You've seen that move up in business consciousness. COP um, summit just last year um, really increased that focus across the UK, which I think 
despite the, the challenges of a, of a lockdown of a previously lockdown COP and, and not being able to do some of the things you would have done before that. What we still see, though, are barriers. There's, there's now a more of a will to act. So that, I think that's the, 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 the different one of the big differences. But we still see um, big barriers around knowledge and around concerns about what technologies um, will be there and what future strategies will be required. And some of this comes down to, unfortunately, um, issues and challenges with government, long-term government policy. We saw the energy strategy uh, released last week or the week before, and, um, and you know had a huge, huge gaping hole in it of energy demand reduction. Energy efficiency is, is not sexy, but has to be part of our solutions. So there's still, we need these long-term directional policy um, policy strategies. We know that the government will be coming out with a new green finance strategy later in the year. So we see that, that direction, but it really needs to be more ambitious and faster. There's a real risk of not moving fast enough. On the positive, there is, on, in terms of the enablers, we're seeing vast um, capital flows move to the sector. But it's the 100 billion um, uh, pound commitment we've made by 2025 to of, of climate sustainable finance and funding, or whether it's the 130 trillion dollars that Mark Carney promised um, as part of the net zero action on the zero banking alliance um, at COP. So we're seeing capital flows move towards these assets, but actually they're still not the knowledge. They're still still quite restricted pools of where this capital can flow. Thanks, Rishi. Tom, anything you wanted to add? Yeah, so I think there's 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 something very different about net zero when you're coming from a bank or an asset manager in that there's a requirement to to live with a level of ambiguity that we're not used to we like to have plans that are precise and by definition climate is a series of scenarios where you know something in the future is going to play out but we don't know for certain what it is and therefore you can't predict the actions that you're going to need to take to address it up front and you need to be able to work on a sensible set of actions that will take you in the direction and push towards that. But you don't necessarily know the exact path that you're going to go through. And some people find that difficult. And it's about making tangible progress and putting in place the systems and structures to, to get you there. And I think you've seen massive, massive progress since, since we st first started talking about this and, and announced that West climate strategy in 2020, which was you know, the, the first, I think, big, big commitment by one of the banks, as well as Lloyd's. And you've seen the progress since then has just been amazing. Really good point, Tom's. I think um, where we've seen absence of clear government policy and government policy direction, you've seen corporates and leading corporates and financial institutions have to step up into that void and agree those targets. And that next phase of when transition plans come out um, from financial institutions, you'll see this is this has become the new uh, the next the next frontier of how we will have clear plans of to to, to, to decarbonize our balance sheets. Fantastic. You've talked there a little bit, Rishi and, and Tom, about uh, government and the role FIs have to play specifically in supporting the transition to net zero. What about society more broadly and what are our expectations of them and what do we need them to do? This is a whole society and whole economy transition. We really need to change behaviours from how we consume goods in our current Amazon culture um, to how businesses operate and how their business models uh, exist. And this is it's really difficult. This is not easy. We need, that's why I mean, I re repeat my call for clear policy, but it also now needs to be one level down. We've, I think the big success of COP, you know, there were many, uh, many things that COP didn't quite get as far as we'd liked it to. But what, one of the big successes was actually putting net zero into the lexicon and putting that into people's mindsets and into company mindsets and corporate mindsets. We then need to have those policies around to, to help per sector. These will vary per sector, 
there will be specific policies, whether it's energy sector um, decarbonisation, whether it's transport decarbonisation, and these get this gets quite specific. These will need thoughtfulness. They will need to be applying what are the impacts on society around these. You know, if not everyone can afford to put in a heat pump in their home, not everyone can afford to buy an electric vehicle, nor should they necessarily. It depends on their journeys and, and their use. And actually, these are the questions that we need to start to be answering. But we need to bring society with us because politicians ultimately need votes and they'll be scared if they are putting in forward unpopular policies that you know right now when we see that the cost of living um price impacts on society across from from london to leicester the impacts are huge and we really see that impact in in, in every single one of us feels that in our bills if, if government gets these policies wrong we risk losing the public um support for climate policies Tom, from your work on Net Zero specifically, how are the considerations around societal or is society and transition being considered as part of that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is. And clearly, you, you can't pull out of oil and gas without having a very significant impact on jobs in, in different parts of society. But I think in terms of who needs to get involved, I think it, it's the classic word of ecosystem. So we need a combination for the people, take the example of homes, the people whose home it is, and the government who puts the incentives in place and then the providers of capital and the providers of home improvements by coming together we can be successful if any single group tries this alone it's it's unsuccessful as we've seen in the past so this is a collective effort appreciating it is a collective effort and and actually i couldn't couldn't agree more in terms of it's all about partnerships and ways of working together what specific roles given we're talking to i guess suspect a lot of people who work in financial services what role do those institutions need to play both to enable the transition but also to to gain permission from society for that transition great question when uh, firstly i think i mean sometimes it when we first started on this journey, and Tom will remember this back in our West, people were asking, well, what's the bank got to do with climate change? What's the relevance of this? Well, actually, firstly, we know where the money is. So if we want to fund some of these solutions, you need to get this from our balance sheet, and we need to put our balance sheets. Firstly, stop doing bad things and financing things that are not helping the climate uh, tackle the climate emergency, and then funding more of things that are helping to tackle that. So it's a, a both sides of the balance sheet, reducing our risks, reducing those exposures, and also um, helping to accelerate that transition. Because actually the one bit that's sort of, one of the things that gets forgotten in this, and it's been hard, so we've had a, you know, the pandemic for the last two years has, has, taken, has definitely um, taken people's eyes off the ball uh, in, in this instance. And we actually need to get back to acting at pace to make, to make the impacts of climate change less negative. By 20, we need to be setting path to be on a, on a Paris aligned pathway by 2030. And at the moment, I feel we've lost we've lost some of that momentum and that sway. In, normally, post a COP, you'd want to be really um, running at this, and it's been difficult for the government to get the, the momentum going. But then also, I think financial institutions play a role in many ask, important aspects of our lives, whether it's when we buy a home, um, hopefully that uh, people get that chance to do that, or whether we make any active transactions. Every single purchase you make is through your bank account. How do we then incentivize that behavior? And I was really proud that we launched through COP our COGO partnership of tracking your emissions through your app. Now, this is just about equating your financial spending, your carbon budget alongside your normal budgets. And we need to hyper normalize this in the way we think about everything we do, whether it's how we travel, whether it's the train I'm at to get to Leicester, or whether it's the consumption I've made for buying a coffee or how I think about this. And this is where we can help provide some of that data. We can help our customers to realise your energy bills are 20% higher than those in your neighbourhood. How, how do we provide that information back 
to also then de-risk our customers because if our customers have lower, more manageable bills, they have a, a, they are lower credit risk. So there's there's a real um, you know Tom's word the ecosystem here. There's a real ecosystem here. But there's a real circular system here where we help our customers to reduce our own risk. But it's not going to be easy, and that's why all of society needs to be involved. But actually, you know, nearly everyone in the UK will have a bank account, and this is a real way to help enable that conversation. So it sounds like data and insights to enable consumers to make better choices for you is is kind of key, a key activity FIs need to be doing to support transition. Absolutely. And then, you know, that's the retail side. But then when we talk about the commercial and the larger customers, uh, large corporate side, you know, we've got to stop, you know, reduce our lending to those high emission sectors, which don't have credible transition plans. And that was something, um, you know, Tom and I was proud to work on is actually how do we make sure that we are sending our capital to the most positive impacts because there's no good financing a lot of renewables over here if you're still funding mountaintop removal over here so these things are really important to think through your balance sheet and actually look at it from a carbon lens and things like tcfd have really helped with that so we can now look um, at task climate related financial disclosures we can see what exposures lie on people's balance sheets and which sectors those are in so that we can take more targeted interventions because the right solution the solutions are going to be different couldn't agree more tom is there anything you wanted to add if you boil it down banks are a financial representation of the economy they operate in so there is always going to be they are one element of driving the transition but banks need to be able to do to deploy their capital in an effective way as as which is described but also use engagement to ensure that their customers understand the need to transition if they're going to want to continue to access the finance by dint of that no single bank can act alone because if NatWest pulls the finance and all the other banking industry is still providing it that means that the transition won't happen so this is an industry-wide thing and it does feel the industry is, is pulling in that direction. So back to you Rishi just just thinking about from your point of view the interrelationship between net zero and other ESG considerations how are you seeing those two critical topics kind of starting to hopefully come together and align to drive greater outcomes? So it's an interesting, um, this is a bit of a disconnect at the moment, I think, and there's been a rightfully a huge focus on climate and net zero uh, ahead of COP and uh, and around sort of uh, both societal consciousness on this. And there is a, a bit of a gap forming between the investors who are looking increasingly at ESG in, in varying levels of uh, sophistication, but actually we're going to need to reconnect these two. So I think that's one of the big challenges uh, as we as we progress transition plans is to try and think about these societal and governance issues around these which I, I think at the moment are there but are on people's horizons but have been forgotten like give you an example just thinking of the work of um the grantham institute down the road from here at uh, the just, uh, just transition uh, work they're doing what are those social impacts how do you reduce those what are the impacts on different groups of uh, society are there different impacts by gender by race are there different impacts by place? And Tom, uh, Tom alluded to, uh, to some of those earlier. And what are those by sector? And they will be different. And actually, unless we acknowledge those, um, we can't really respond. So the government talks of its levelling up agenda. And I feel that's one of the ways that we will be able to sort of perhaps reconnect that climate to, um, to, to regional growth again. Because I think we do need to think around what are these impacts? How do we mitigate those? And, you know, you, you can't not we can't walk past a newsstand today without seeing that cost of living impacts of en- rising energy bills that fuel price um spike so you can see this is really cutting through at all levels of society and those pieces 
you know, unless we can start to sort of come up with solutions to help people with those, people are going to be, there can be increasing anger around these, but these are effectively social aspects um, of climate. What about you, Tom? How are you seeing clients handle or consider the interrelationship between net zero and other broader ESG considerations? I definitely feel that they are further ahead on, on their thinking on net zero and, and the ESG implications of that are, are considered from a what is the impact of as opposed to on the same level as uh, net zero at this stage. Um, I, I guess there's two, two ways to think about uh, the interrelationships over this, but the elements that support each other. So, you know, by reducing emissions in London, we're going to improve air quality, as an example. And there's, so there's some, some mutually reinforcing elements. And then there's the converse aspect where, you know, net zero could have a negative impact on particular jobs and industries in some places and, and, and in, in others it could, could create jobs. So we need to be very considered of those, but it's very specific to each and every aspect. Tom, are you actually starting to see people making those assessments when they're making decisions around net zero? Uh, yes, definitely. It's, it's, it's not universal. So um, wh where a, a bank or, or, or client has a, a, a range of different kind of ESG metrics that they are targeting, it will be considered more than when uh, net zero is the key objective. So it's not a universal thing, um, but you are seeing it. And it's, ESG is becoming an increasing focus for banks and asset managers. But as I say, it's just it's it's still behind net zero from a focus perspective. I'm just checking in, Rishi. You conclude that's that's fair a fair representation of where you feel the market is at the moment. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think um, we might come on to this later in the discussion. But I think some of the metrics are. It's sort of almost now carbon has become easier to measure or relatively easier to measure and we've got better data around it whereas some of these health benefits tom's example of air quality it helps people save people's lives but that health benefit is very difficult to factor into an economic investment decision you know it's our jobs actually and part of the reason i'm delighted to be here today is we have to raise these issues and help put some of the brightest brains out there i'm not saying we have all the answers but how do we get people to apply these to figure out how do we value this better because obviously that's a good goal if, if children live longer older people live long are able to live longer uh, and be healthier that's a that's an audible goal but it's not current laudable goal it's, but it's not measured in current uh, return metrics sounds like you both concur that whilst net zero feels like it's well underway with the measurement of carbon and we're getting that under control there's quite a lot more to do then around the broader wider set of environmental considerations and, and and moving into some of the social considerations rishi i remember i can't remember if it's the first time we met but definitely one of the first times we met you talked about and i found it absolutely fascinating about good jobs and how you measured what a good job was and how you defined what a good job was because actually that's really important not to say that you as an fi created i don't know a hundred thousand jobs for example but they're all zero hours contracts and is that really meaningful and can we genuinely go out into the world and say that's something positive that we did for society or not um i don't know if you want to add any more to that but I, I, just a question for me, are there any other social metrics that you think are really, really important that we start to actively measure? Yeah, and, and, and Emily, I remember that conversation vividly because I found a, a similar, a similarly minded person understood this, these things inst instinctively, which is not always the case. Um, when, when that West issued its first social bond, 
it, we, uh, we're measuring uh, our SME lending against jobs created. And that was a very simple measure. Our view on that was to start this conversation going about actually what is the positive impact, what can be, what can be the positive impact, and started to measure that. Now, we know job, jobs was the obvious one, was the easy one um, to start with. But actually, as soon as you just peel below the surface, there are really good high quality jobs, there are low quality jobs, there are precarious work, there's dangerous work still, unfortunately, as we discover in some parts of the country. A simple measure like this can't, can, can, uh, can hide the multitude of sins. And this is where, um, back to that point around carbon having got better, we're still not great at measuring scope three emissions in ev everywhere and certainly not in, in the FI space, but we've got better because there's been a focus on this. And there needs to be that similar focus on social metrics. What are the, what are the other pieces we can measure? And these will also vary by sector. So for example, a good social outcome of housing cessations is people housed. That's not the same measure as for, for a health service. And when you think about what are intrinsically social sectors, and then what are sectors that we, what are the measures that will be per sector that we can create? Now, some of this work is ongoing. There's some excellent work at the Impact Investment Institute, um, again, down the road, but there's not enough focus on this. And back to the previous question, um, this is where social and other concerns lag behind. And even similarly with nature, when we look at broader environmental considerations, you know, the TNFD, I think there's a consultation out now, but it's it's lagging, it's far lagging. And when we know there's a biodiversity emergency as well as a climate emergency, we've got a lot of work to do. And that's kind of why I bring back the sense of urgency um, in, in everything we do. Tom, anything you wanted to add there? Just to pull up the, the word impact. I mean, it, it, is, it is so hard to measure impact. And I think this is one of the reasons why the uh, broader E and S are slower than net zero, where you've got a sim simple measure to, 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 to track. I think we need to increasingly get to impact, and impact is different for every single project, it's different for every single metric, and, and we just need to work, work hard to ensure that we are measuring the thing that is important to society and, and the world. Yeah, really good point. I mean, I think that thinking needs to happen per sector. Because as you say, you know, it's no good me decarbonising that West balance sheet and it all sitting on another bank's balance sheet. That's a failure. What's the outcome we're aiming for? What's the, the impact we want to have is about decarbonising society, not, not just moving um, emissions around between uh, balance sheets. So finally, last question. Um, Rishi, I suspect I might know who the answer will be from you, but we'll wait to see. So who do you think is doing a good job of this at the moment? So I think this is actually the million dollar question. Um, I still pinch myself um, to see my CEO, my chairman speaking eloquently on climate and really passionately about this topic. Um, I couldn't have guessed it eight years ago when I started in the climate strategy journey um, in, in, in the team that we would have 15 of our C-suite banging and fighting to get to COP and wanting to engage and really push their divisions and functions and, um, and franchises further. But ultimately, you know, as we've just discussed, it's no good one bank succeeding. So actually, until we are moving the whole financial services sector to be genuinely along this um, this journey, we you know we we all fail. So you know, if one of us fails, we all fail. This is a collective mission. I think there are huge risks at the moment of greenwashing. Um, I the number of investor presentations I get as chair of a pensions committee that just have to be sent back because it's uh, not, not necessarily the information that I would, uh, would recognise or trust. Um, similarly, a problem of green wishing. We've set our net zero targets. We've set our Paris alignment targets. But are we just hoping if we haven't got the actions coming underneath that and a programme of work, is that just wishing? 
And then finally, green delay. And I still see this, whether it's some of the lobbying from some of the last vestiges of uh, sectors that you know, we, we saw recently that anti-net zero group form in government. There's a lot more work to do. So um, ultimately, I'm not going to say NetWest. Uh, I think we, I'm, I'm, like, I'm proud of some, what we've achieved so far, but it's not enough. And I think that's where I, I would stop my comments. Thank you. And Tom, any exemplars from you? Any controversy in what Rishi said from your point of view? No controversy is, is such. It's, you know, I think you know, there's been lots of good movement and lots of organisations who, who are making a real step forward. Um, I, the, the thing I really took from that is green wishing. I, I, I really like that as a, as a phrase because you, you have seen, and there's probably a, a difference between making an ambition that you then work incredibly hard to roll behind and making an ambition because you know you have to and then not rolling behind it. Um, and we've seen, we've seen a lot of organisations come out of those ambitions and who are now motoring behind it. And I think that's a um, the green wishing is definitely a phrase that I will take away. Me too. So thanks for calling that out, Tom. Um, as much as I would absolutely love to continue our conversational afternoon, I'm afraid we are out of time. Rishi, massive thanks to you for taking the time to come and talk to us. And Tom, thank you again for joining us as well.